Ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls, welcome to Chewing the Gristle, a podcast of doom and destruction. I'm your host, Greg Cock, Gregory Cockery, or the Gristle Man, if you will. We're going to have extemporaneous conversations with a variety of very powerful musical friends. We're going to converse about life, liberty, and the pursuit of musical savagery. Is that wrong? I don't think so. So tune in. Brought to you by our friends at Wildwood Guitars of beautiful Louisville, Colorado. Fishman Transducers of the majestic and powerful community known as Andover, Massachusetts. Can you dig it? A legend of Nashville. Another Telecaster Annihilator. Tasteful, yet sassy. You've seen him with the fabulous superlatives. Marty Stewart, Lucinda Williams... He is both fabulous and superlative. Ladies and gentlemen, the mighty Kenny Vaughn. Ladies and gentlemen, Greg Koch here. Another exciting episode of Chewing the Gristle. We have the mighty Kenny Vaughn, whose uh, list of credentials is long and bold. But I will just say I'm a huge fan of your musical activities, your Telecaster stylings. and. Thank you. Uh, I enjoyed when I knew we were doing the vid. I, I did the deep dive and uh, and started listening to a bunch of stuff, and I just enjoyed the hell out of it. So great oh, to have you, you on. It's an honor. It's a pleasure. So where are you right now? I'm in Nashville, Tennessee, Nashville. in the West Mead area uh, at my home here. Uh, my wife's out over at my daughter's house right now. The little kitten's running around here that belongs to my youngest daughter, who is uh, in uh, the sixth grade. And oh, excellent! There's a bunch of dogs in the den. Hopefully, they won't start barking. Well, we are um, enjoyers of the wildlife community here on the uh, on the podcast. We might have All a couple right. of Bengal bats that might lurk in here and start mewing piteously for some kind of nourishment. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Anytime I can fit in mewing piteously into any conversation, that's a good <laughs> that's a good expression. I like that very much. <laughs> so let's talk a little bit about your. Well, you know, we can do any number of different things. I do like to just kind of touch base with people and see how they're doing through this, you know, this strange time that we're in where no one's traveling. You can't really gig. Uh, well, but, thanks to, but thanks to the Internet, you can do other yeah. things. But so what, yeah. what are you all been doing? Well, I tell you what, I, I haven't been. Um, this is the longest I've gone without playing a live show right. since um, 1966. The and, year of my uh, birth. You know, uh, so there you go. Um, that's when I started playing in 66, and I immediately started playing shows, you know, probably months after acquiring a Fender Telecaster. Yes. And, um, and uh, you know, I was playing garage rock and stuff. But, you know, this is the first time that I've had to sort of revisit my life uh, as it was when I was in my late teens and early 20s when I, I was basically had a lot of free time on my hands to, you know, study guitar and stuff like that. And, uh, and I got back into that, and so it's kind of like been uh, really good, you know. Right. Uh, working on stuff that I haven't had time to think about, and it, and it's been a great break for me. Uh, so I, I I just try to look on the positive side. It's been terrible financially, Absolutely. of course, but uh, you know we're muddling through. My, my my wife's a musician too. She's really quite talented. Uh, she she's the uh, genius of the in the of the couple and uh, she's a freaky musical genius like uh, like unusually strange um uh you know abilities to harmonize uh quickly and all that stuff uh, just in so, well you know born with a, a freaky musical freaky mind. ear 
a musical yeah. mind. I like it. Yeah, quick, very quick. Well, let me ask you a question. Uh, this is something I like to, you know, I've, I, I played Telecasters, um, you know, I've played other guitars over the years, but my first, you know, I guess you would say real guitar was a Telecaster, but it, but at the time it was, it wasn't because it was, I think most of my idols at that point in time were Strat player, you know, Hendrix and, you know, at that point, you know, Mark Knopfler and, you know, and Clapton was playing a Strat by that particular period of time. Mm-hmm. And, um, and, you know, I was into, you know, Albert Lee and, and, um, and, and Albert Collins and stuff at that point in time. But I guess the Telecaster to me was just the Fender guitar that was available to me. And then it just became ergonomically my favorite guitar. What was it for you? Was it, was it something you wanted above all else or was it just the guitar um, you ended up with? Well, it's a, it it happened this way. My, when I first, um, you know, uh, when I, I grew up in uh, a house where my father had a, uh, a jazz record collection and he listened to uh, cool jazz. And so by the time I was three and four and five, I was listening to Jimmy Smith and Kenny Burrell, Wes Montgomery, Tony Mottola, Johnny Smith. And I grew up in Denver. And my, uh, when, when the Beatles hit Ed Sullivan, I immediately told my dad, I said, man, I want to play the guitar. I got to put, I got to get a guitar and play the guitar. He said, well, he said, okay, you know, and, and there was a, a nylon string guitar around the house and you know i it was not a very good guitar at all but i plunked around on that uh when i was maybe 11 and um uh you know from from you know and I barely could make any chords and figure out what was going on with the guitar but i kept you know hammering away at it and he had a uh, a friend who was about six years older than me maybe seven years older than me and uh, who had a local rock band. Uh, and so he hired this guy to come over to my house and give me lessons when I was like 11 or 12. And um, probably at the, probably, I, I guess I was almost 12. And, uh, and so a friend of mine had a, a Fender Jaguar oh. and uh, he never played it. It was brand new. Uh, his grandmother had given it to him and he never opened the case and he let me borrow it. And so I plugged it into my little stereo there, you know, and, ah, yeah. and I was like, oh, man, I got to get one of these. And, and my guitar teacher, I'd already I already had by the time I was 12, I, I still didn't have a real guitar, but uh, I already had having a rave up with the Yardbirds. Oh. And I was a big I'd seen Jeff Beck on playing with the Yardbirds on um, Shindig in 66 uh, before I got a guitar. And uh, it might have been late 65, but I think it was early 66 when they performed on Shindig Live, you know, and he played, you know, um, they did A Heart Full of Soul and he played the solo. And I was like, oh, my God, (laughs) this guy. And then they did I'm a Man at the end of the show. And he held his guitar like this, you know, at the end of the show. He picked it up he starts running a slide up and down the strings and suddenly the world went from black and white to technicolor. <laughs> and I was like, what's going on? This guy's making noise on his guitar and it's like unreal. And then it cut to the credits and then that was the end. And I'm like, you know, and, but anyway, my, I told my teacher, I want to get a Fender Jaguar, man. And he says, no, you don't. And he points to the record cover of having a rave up in my bedroom. You know, he says, you see that? So if you want to sound like that guy, you can't get that on a Jaguar. You got to get one of those, a Telecaster. And I was uh-huh. like, oh, well, that's cheaper, you know. 
So meanwhile, before all this ever, ever took place, when I first announced to my father that I wanted to be a guitar player, he said, well, well let's go down and hear my friend Johnny play. Johnny uh, Smith lived in Colorado Springs. That's right, yeah. Which was 85 miles away from where I lived in Denver. And uh, he came up every Saturday night to play at this little place called Shaner's. So my dad would take me down to Shaner's on Saturday nights and set me right in front of Johnny. And there's Johnny Smith playing with the Neil Bridge Trio, you know, piano, upright bass, and drums, and playing as Johnny Smith plugged into a Gibson recording amp with a single 15 speaker, you know. And I'm just like, and he says, watch my friend Johnny. He can really play the guitar. <laughs> so, and so I would, so that was the first guy I ever saw in person play guitar. I was watching Johnny Smith play before I even had an electric guitar and before I really got serious. So I started taking lessons from Denny and uh, he told me to get a Telecaster. So I had a paper route in, in uh, the summer of 1966 and Johnny Smith had a, a music store in the Springs, Johnny Smith Music on 8th Street down in the Springs. And uh, he had a Gibson dealership and a Fender dealership, both in the same store, which was unusual for those days. But anyway, um, I guess because he was the great Johnny Smith, he could get right. away with it. Yes. So anyway, uh, my dad did know him, and we uh, I talk, uh, We used to go over to the waitress station and talk to him be, when he'd take a break uh, at Shaner's, you know, and visit with him. And so my dad said, well, I can, I'm sure we can get a good uh, deal from Johnny, you know, on a Fender Telecaster, you know. So we went down there, and he sold us a brand-new Fender Telecaster. It was He opened up the case, and, the, and the, the brown paper wrapping was still around the neck, you know. Oh. We, we unsealed it, you know, and there it was, a blonde rosewood board Fender Telecaster, and I thought, well, there's my guitar, you know. And I think, I think we paid 175 or something like that with the case, wow. you know. And, um, and you know, I was in business. And uh, my friend across the street, uh, his, his dad was a, a motorhead who had a couple of junkyards and a couple of gas stations and he was always rebuilding carburetors and the kitchen table and had harleys and all these fabulous old cars around a couple of 50 he had 57 t-bird and a 56 t-bird and just all this stuff he was a johnny cash guy but this isn't be this is in 66 before johnny cash made those live records you know okay this right. is, but but he they would play those johnny cash records and i didn't know he was a country artist you know i did i I was just the guy that had Ring of Fire, which was played right. on the same station that played the Rolling Stones and James Brown, you know. Right. And, it, you know, and I, that's all I knew of him. But I started listening to these songs, and, and they had that uh, one record that they did at Columbia where they re-recorded all the hits with Johnny's band when, they, when he got signed to Columbia. And there was a one of those records, there was a version of a Folsom Prison Blues in the studio. You know, and I really, we really liked the song, so I learned how to, you know, do... You know, right. I learned how to do that before I had the, but when I plugged in my telly and did that, my friend went crazy. You know, he was like, he was like, oh my God, that's the coolest thing ever happened. You know, right. and you can, you know, and do that again. You know, and I was like, wow, this guitar business is really fun. You know, and said, <laughs> you know, you know, and then there was a, uh, some other guys on my block and we had a little band, you know, and, but that's how I got the Telecaster. It was because of Jeff Beck. That's, that's what that's I. A good way to, that's a good way to go yeah, about it. That's why I had it. I had it. There was no other reason for me to have it at, at, at that time. And then uh, my cousin uh, was a, older than me, and he had he was a music nut, and he brought home the first Paul Butterfield album. And oh, there you go. That. And there was Mike Bloomfield playing a Telecaster. I thought, well, man, what a stroke of good luck, you know. I'm, 
you know, I've got the right guitar, you know, because that I looked in the back and there was that little picture of him, you know, hunched over the telly. Right. And I was like, yeah, all right. Yeah, that's, you know, that's that's good, you know. And uh, so, you know, my my little band started out playing garage rock, you know, in 66. And we never played Beatles songs because they were too hard. You know, <laughs> we couldn't we couldn't sing like that. You know, we were more of a you know, playing simpler stuff like Gloria and Rolling Stones, easy songs, you know, right. stuff that wasn't hard, you know, you know, more, you know, just basic stuff. And, uh, but we progressed and, and then, you know, uh, that Bloomfield thing with Butterfield, you know, kind of got to me and we did a couple of those songs and uh, I started learning how to do that, you know, a little bit. And, um, and the guy I was taking lessons from also showed me how to play a, a very simplified version of Johnny Smith's arrangement of Misty, you know. Okay. So, you know, and then my dad was, you know, he was bringing home records by Wes Montgomery. And, and you know, I always had the jazz stuff going all the time. You know, I, I thought everybody's dad listened to jazz. I didn't know that I was Gosh. unusual. You know, but he had all these records. You know, I knew John Coltrane and Miles Davis were, you know, and, you know, I thought that I, and I used to love uh, So What, you know, by Miles oh, yeah. Davis. I was like, why does that sound so cool to me? What <laughs> is it about that song? Right. You know, you know, it's just like, wow, you know, that's, that's really something, you know, and it, you know, uh, my imagination was just fired by that stuff. You know, it's like, wow, this is great, you know. And then, uh, uh, you know, things kept happening in the music world, you know. And the Beatles started putting out those crazy, you know, records that sort of left all the other bands in the dust, you know. Right. Like, you know, when, when, when Paperback Writer and Rain came out, it was like, wait a minute. Right. You know, what happened here? This is not like your regular stuff here. This is different, you know. And, and uh, you know, on top of that, my cousin was living up in Boulder. And, you know, he was... Uh, you know, by the time I was 14, 15, uh, he was turning me on to all these great records, you know, by these, you know, more adventurous bands, you know. And I got to see, um, you know, The Grateful Dead a couple of times early on, quite a few times in from uh, 68 and 69, you know. And uh, that was an eye-opening experience because Jerry was, at that time, Jerry was really on fire, you know. Right. He was youthful and he was playing... Uh, SGs and Les Pauls and, and a Strat back in right. those days. You know, those are the guitars. I never saw him play those uh, fancy guitars after, you know, yeah, I, all I the button, all the buttons when, on when, when my deadhead experience was like 67, 68, 69, 70. And then after that, I sort of fell off of him, you know, a little bit, you know, I didn't, you know, when, when Pigpen died, I, my, my deadhead thing kind of died too. <laughs> but, but I really did like their early stuff, you know, and that really opened up a thing for me because, you know, I was thinking, well, they're doing what John Coltrane's doing. They're improvising, you know, right. they're, they're playing long extended solos and, and it's not just a bunch of blues licks. They're playing scales and melodies and, and, and uh, arpeggios. And, and, you know, Jerry was really good, you know, cause he'd been a bluegrasser, sure. you know, he followed Bill Monroe around and he knew about, you know, modes you know, sure. and he'd been listening. Obviously, they'd listened to all the jazz cats. So I had that in my head, too, you know. And then I saw Jimi Hendrix three times. Oh, you and did? Then, yeah, yeah. Um, uh, it was uh, the, uh, I saw him in um, the end of 67, the middle of 68, and then the, the middle the of The last 69. concert? 
Yeah, I think, that? That, I think that was the very last show of the the original experience. Was that, that. was sixty nine? Yeah, that yeah. was the last night that they played. We did, I didn't know that till many years later. You know that that was Noel's last gig. But uh, yeah, but that last show was the best of the three that I saw. That was the yeah. first one where he had an actual PA system. You know, the first uh, two were like just a couple of column speakers. You know, and no so, no mics on anything. But he always sounded great no matter what. You know, his right. his tone was so good. And then I became a, a Strat in uh, '69. I got a hold of a, a I think it was a '59 Strat. And you know, at that time they were worthless. You know, I think right. I paid just a used guitar. Yeah, yeah, hundred and thirty dollars or something, you know, with the case, you know, and um, you know, it was used, and uh, I played that for a while, and you know, and you know, you know, you talk about me being associated with the, tel- the Telecaster, but when I moved to Nashville, um, my primary guitar was my '66 Strat. That was really what I played on stage a lot back in those days, and then I got back. I had an Esquire. And I got back into it after a while, but really, when I first hit town, I was a Strat guy, really. Yeah, and, I understand. Uh, but you know, I've always had a lot of different kinds of guitars. In '68, I got a brand new Les Paul gold top, you know, because I'd seen Jerry Garcia play in a gold top, so sure. I thought oh, I gotta have one of those, you know. It was kind of and funny. And Mike Bloomfield, Bloomfield right. had a gold top for a minute, you know, and I thought, well, that's a good sound. I like that, you know. So it had the P90s, you know, and you know, I owned a lot of different, you know vintage guitars back in those days when you could afford them, you know? Right. You Before know? they were vintage guitars, they were just, as we said earlier. Yeah, yeah it's funny, when I, you know, when I first got my um, telly, um, I had it, you know, for a couple of years there playing it, and uh, the same, the guy that was giving me lessons, um, he had had a Jaguar, and he got a, a 53 telly, and he came over, and he let me borrow his 53 telly for, like, a couple of days, because he was going somewhere, and uh, he... He said, here, play, check out my guitar, man. And I was like, I've got a 66 telly. Why does his 53 sound so much better than my 66? You know, that was my first thing. Like, I was like, why is this sound better to me? You know, what is it about this thing? You know, I couldn't figure it out because it looked the same, same pickups. You know, it had a a maple board. So I figured, oh, that's the keys. It's the maple board. You know, I I found out years later, well, that it was more than just the board. You know, it was like everything, you know. But uh, well, it's interesting earlier when you were talking about, um, first of all, the paper route, the paper route back in the day was the way that you could afford guitars. People don't have paper routes anymore. And then the other thing is that you mentioned plugging your guitar into a stereo. I think we all did that. Did we? Yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Or else taking a little tape recorder. I remember taking the uh, microphone from the tape recorder and putting it in the sound hole of the acoustic guitar and it would distort and you'd get like well, this my, my friend up the street had a um, his uncle had a, a, a reel-to-reel deck that had speakers in it. Oh yeah, and it had inputs for mics, and we plug into that, and it sounded amazing. We we're yeah. like, oh my god, because we could it would distort a little bit, you know. We turned right. it up, and it's like, oh my god, listen to that, you know. And then um, it also had a, uh, uh, you know, you could. Uh, do the sound on sound thing and make it echo, you know? And so Uh we had that, that was my first echo thing was the reel to reel deck. And, uh, I was, I I loved that. You know, I was like, yeah, man, that's cool. So what kind of amp did you first end up with when you were, Uh, my dad built a Heath kit amp on the ping, on the ping pong table downstairs. Wild. <laughs> took him about took him about ten days to put it together because he was you know he'd come home from work and work on it for a little while down there. But he was a very meticulous guy. He was an artist and a and a draftsman and 
you know, very meticulous. So he was, everything was organized well. And, you know, and uh, he, he did a great job and it worked well. It was a 212, probably about 30 watts, you know, loud enough, you know, had reverb and tremolo. Nice. And, you know, it worked. And then uh, I got a hold of a, of a crown fuzz, fuzz tone. Oh yeah. Uh, and, um, and it was pretty cool. It had a little tone switch that you could get two different characters out of it. And, uh, I was like, yeah, that'll work, you know. So, you know, that that was my, uh, you know, it helped me with the solid state thing, you know. And then I finally scored up a Fender Twin in the 69. I got one of those. And then after that, I got a, a brown Fender concert. And that's when I really learned about the glory of tube, you know, because right. on the concert, you could turn it all the way up. Right. And it, and it, and it sounded great, you know, when you turned everything on 10, you know. Then it had the harmonic vibrato on it, right? Is that yeah, that? man? Yeah, and it was a good sounding amp. You know, it really got that, you know, that blues sound that I was looking for. You know, that was when I really finally like, oh man, that's it. Yeah. There it is. Yeah, that was I was really lucky because it was a beat up concert, but I got it for nothing. You know, but it sounded so much better to me than my twin. You know, it wasn't sure. as loud, but it sounded great. You know, that's like yeah, it would yeah. submit. <laughs> yeah. you know and of course you know like everybody else you've heard it a million times when you know the when we got a hold of the Bino album uh, right. the folklore center they the denver folklore center imported records and that was the only place you could get that but when i bought that and listened to it i was like whoa you know whoa that's what i want to do that's the sound for me you know well yeah. you know it's interesting you should mention because obviously you know i was i was born a little later and i yeah. I didn't discover the Beano record until I was around, you know, 12 or 13. But now we're talking, you know, it's it's 1979. You know what I mean? So what was right. it like when that record came out? Did everyone well, know about it or was it underground? It was well, or- it, we, we um, our, our um, one of the guys that hung around my band on the block uh, acquired the first copy on the block. And he had everybody up to his living room at his parents house one afternoon. He says, you guys got to hear this. And we put it on and we all just stood there with our mouths open. Like, you know, it was like, that was the something we'd never heard before, you right. know? And it was that, what's that? What, what one slow blues on side two? Uh, uh, double there, cross in time. There's that no, one. No, it's, um, have you heard? Have you heard? Yeah, have yeah. you heard? Yeah. His solo on have you heard, man. It's like buddy guy. It's uh, it meets, uh, you know, uh, fucking, you know, Hubert Sumlin or something. Right. It's just like, it's so jagged and visceral and just, you know, it's just, it was just, it was everything you ever wanted right there. And that one guitar solo was like, yep. man, this is somebody that's really saying something. It was like, we'd never heard anything like it. And we, we were stunned, you know, we were so jazzed by that, that sound and that attitude, you know. And, and it never gets, it never gets old. Isn't that crazy? No, no. Yeah, man. You know, I was really into that. I, I was like, yeah, that's it. You know? So, so at some point, did you say, I got to get a Marshall? Well, I as, never as really that had a Marshall. Right. You know, I was, a, I was, I had old fenders and I was into the tweeds and the brown. Yeah, which which will know, do the same I, thing, right? You know, it, it was, and, and um, I, a friend of mine had a GA55 Gibson, you know, okay. you know Les oh, Paul, yeah, yeah. The, the single 12 thing. Yes. And that's like the American Marshall, you know, I mean that it's, it got the Eric Clapton, Beano sound 
Right. I, mean, I mean, there it was. And, we, and that was, uh, you know, I, he, he uh, let me borrow that amp for years. I, I was playing through that thing. I was like, man, you know, this is the deal right here. You know, right. that's what I, and, um, so when you were in Colorado, what point was it there that you took some lessons from Bill Frizzell or? Yeah, I, w- I was, uh, um, I think I was 17. So I would have been like 71 or 72. We're, we, we've tried, we're still in touch with each other and we tried to figure it out. We, as best we can figure out, it was either 71 or 72. I think it was 71. And, um, uh, I walked into Melody Music in Inglewood one day and there was this hippie over in the corner bent over a, a Gibson guitar playing jazz. And I was like, that sounds really good. This guy's ah. not playing like all the other guys who play jazz. There's something different about this guy. It was different. His approach was more open and there was, and he wasn't playing all the same notes that everybody else played. The sure. other were jazz guys, you know, I was like that. And I, and I went up to the owner of, who was behind the counter. I said, what the hell is that, man? He says, oh, that's our new guitar instructor, Bill Frizzell. <laughs> and I said, uh, well, can I sign up? And and he said, yeah, yeah, I'll sign you up. And so we, you know, I was there at the desk and he scheduled me. And I don't even think I talked to Bill that day. I was just so blown away. I just watched him play, you know, from like a few feet away. I was like, oh, you know, and, and Bill was kind of like he is now. He hasn't changed that much in all these years. You know, he's the same guy. He's a shy you know, soft-spoken individual choose, you know, thinks before he speaks. And, you know, there's a lot of, well, uh, you know, uh, (laughs) you know, he's that way, you know, but he's a, you know, but when he plays, he played like he plays now then, you know, it was just amazing to watch and listen to it and feel it, you know, it's like, oh man. And so it turned out he'd been studying with Jim Hall, you know, and, and, and uh, he knew, you know, all the stuff I wanted to know, basically. And, and so I, I probably studied it with him for maybe two months at the most. And then one day, um, the, my last lesson, he came in and he said, uh, man, this is going to be our last lesson. I said, whoa, what's going on, man? He says, I got to get out of here, man. I got I to gotta go to New York. I, I'm going to die if I stay here, you know? And I was like, yeah, I can dig that, you know? And uh, right. so, you know, a couple of years later, you know, he... Uh, started making records with everybody you know and uh, right but he's still just like he was then and he's, he's he's amazing great guy but i learned a lot from him in that short period you know he he was really um a pretty good teacher excellent he showed me you know the basics of music theory and the fretboard and and then showed me how to apply it and gave me some help tips you know tips like you know you don't need to do the tonic don't mess with the, the fifth degree when you're doing chords, sport, you know, choose the, the sixth or the seventh and the third, you know, and right. those are the important notes. And then the extensions, you know, but, you know, you don't have to play the tonic or the, or the fifth. If you, you know, those aren't important, you know, and I, you know, I grappled with all that, you know, and sort of like, Oh yeah, I guess I kind of see what he means, you know? And, uh, you know, the more I tried to apply it, the more it made sense to me, you know, but, uh, yeah, that was that was good for me. So by the whole, I'm sorry, the I was going to ask you. Sorry, go ahead. <laughs> well, you know, and the whole country thing for me came about um, by necessity, really. Is in in that you know when I was a, I got kicked out of school when I was in the you know at the end of the 
when I, at the beginning of my junior year because they thought I was a drug dealer, which oh. I was not. I took a lot of drugs, but I didn't ever sell any. You know, I bought them, but I didn't. I, I'd never ever sold them. You know, I was a guitar player. I was play. I was in my bedroom. You know, smoking weed and listening to music and playing the guitar. You know, I wasn't right. you know, doing anything seriously bad. You know, and uh, anyway, um, so my parents moved to Kansas when I was eighteen. Huh. And I, at that point, I was like, well, I don't want to go live in the middle of Kansas. So I guess I'm staying here in Denver because I was playing all the time. You know, I had bands I was playing in. And, you know, uh, I was, the, you know, I had a little jazz group I played in doing like Carla Blay tunes and Weather Report tunes and stuff like that. And then I had, uh, uh, you know, my rock and roll bands that I played with. Um, and we would play clubs sometimes, but... I didn't really like that so much because I didn't want to be in a cover band playing what the, what the hits of the day, you know, I was right. more of a hippie. I was more like, I want to play more cool music than that. I don't want to play for squares, man. You know? And, uh, I, when I, when they left town, I was, I wasn't going to get a job. I was like, to me, getting a job sounded like going to prison, you know, right. it just, I, I was just like, no, I can't do that. You know? And, um, and I lucked in, you know, down the street from where um, I lived, there was a little night spot, a little bar. It was a bar. And um, there was a band in there that all these old guys that played country music, you know, and they were really good players, you know. And I was like, man, these guys are cool. And they were old and they played old country from like the 50s and 60s, you know. And this was in the, you know, early 70s or mid 70s. And um, so I they ended up hiring me to play guitar, you know? And, and then through that gig, I met all the country players in Denver and some of the guitar players were just monsters, you know, really good players. And I was just knocked out by these cats. And, and I liked the loose approach that they had, you know, they, they looked at gigs like they were jobs, you know, and they, they weren't really playing like they had no, big agenda in life other than to make some money and have fun playing country music, you know? Right. And it was more about, they loved the music that they were playing and they looked up to the players that had, you know, you know, and they were always talking about Hank Garland and, you know, uh, Grady Martin and stuff. And that was the first time I heard all those names, you know, sure. and Merle Travis and all those. And so it was like educational for me. Plus they were like, you know, 30 years older than me. Right. And, and I was just this young punk, sort of you know rock and roll kid and but i was you know eager to play with them and it was easy for me because i got paid by the night you know and and if i had a gig with one of my jazz bands or my rock bands or something i could send in a sub <laughs> and right. didn't care you know they were like oh, okay we'll see you saturday you know and, you know and it was no big deal you know so I, you know, on that circuit of players and bars and stuff around Denver, which was really kind of happening in those days, I was, I was able to sort of supplement, you know, my in income by, you know, it was pretty steady, really, you know, I could play five nights a week and play with guys that were really good. Right. And I didn't have to play stuff I hated. You know, I'd much rather play a Merle Haggard or Hank Williams tune than to play a journey tune, you know, right. you know, I, I just thought that was much more acceptable to my, sure. my, my way of thinking. You know, I didn't want to play commercial top 40 music, you know, 
I was just, I just didn't fit into that world. You know, it just didn't make any sense to me. I was like, and plus I didn't have to travel. I have all all these buddies that I've been in bands with earlier were like, well, I got to go to, uh, you know, North Platte, Nebraska for a month to play at the holiday Inn there. Right. And and they wore uniforms and they were playing all the hits. So, you know, they had to play whatever was popular for dancers, you know? And I was like, Oh my God, I could never do that. You know? And that's really how I got into the country thing. And uh, I started buying old records, um, which were easy. I mean, you could buy stacks of country records for $2. You could come home with more than you could carry, you know, because they were nothing. You know, nobody wanted those things. And um, so I started checking all that stuff out and learning it, you know. And I really got into some of those. You know, I, I slowly sort of pieced together who was really behind all that stuff, you know, who who was playing guitar on on those records and you know and who were who were the people that you really gravitated to that you're like this is really uh, you know well, this is really my style per se well it was james burton was the guy that really influenced everybody i mean right. he was the first guy the first white guy that played teenage music and with a wound with a plain third on his g-string you know right a really lightweight G-string on a telly and got that sound, you know. When he was at Capitol working for Ken Nelson, first couple of weeks, you know, Ken had him on, you know, he was still a teenager. And, you know, he moved Jimmy Bryant over to rhythm guitar and wanted James to play the lead. And Jimmy rebelled, says, you can't do that, man. And so Ken moved him back over to the, you know, they switched him back to where James is playing rhythm and and, and Jimmy played lead. And, and after a couple of days, Ken was just like, no, man, I got to have James. He's got the sound, you right. know, and, and Jimmy could play circles around James, but James had that, that attitude thing. and that sound, you know, and really it all goes back to that because really it, when you look at what Roy Nichols was doing with the Maddox brothers and Rose, he was playing an arch top guitar with heavy strings, you know, and, and it wasn't until, you know, uh, Ken Nelson started making those records with Merle Haggard uh, that the that the James Burton sound really kind of, you know, that James Burton really is the Bakersfield sound. Right. You know, he's the that's where it started, you know, between him and Gene Moles. Those are the two cats, you know, Gene with his Moes right and, and and James with his telly. And then Roy quickly, you know, got a telly with the light strings. And he was really great because he was more of a jazzer. Right. more of a, a strange guy that would play odd notes and and instead instead of like maybe bending from the you know the, the second degree to the third degree of the scale he might bend from the flat five to the five you know and do sure. more he would play more quirky shit you know and, right. and, and uh, you know when i started going to see those guys live haggard and the strangers i was just knocked out by merle's vocal sound and and roy's guitar sound and and and, uh, you know, uh, what's his name? Uh, Norm Hamlet's steel playing, you know, oh, I was just yeah. like, wow. And I saw in 68, um, I saw Buck Owens and the Buckaroos live. And that was like seeing the fucking Beatles. I mean, those people I, went nuts for those guys, you know, and this is still 68 when they were still riding high on their, you know, their earlier um, success, Tiger by sure. the Tail and all that stuff, you know. So they were really still kicking hard, you know. It was, um, I guess it was, uh, I think Tom Brumley was already gone by 68. I think it was probably J.D. Manis on Steel, but I'm not sure who, who it was that night. But but Don Rich was there, you know, playing his silver telly and Buck yep. had his telly. 
and they both plugged into the same dual showman. You know, <laughs> they had a du- they had three dual showmans on stage: one for the steel player, one for the bass player Doyle Holly, and one for uh, Buck and Don. You know, and that was the way they always worked. They never really. They always just played, well, we'll both play, you know, we're just guitar players. We'll play through the same amp, you know. Uh, <laughs> they had white coil chords, you know. But that really knocked me out because their vocal thing was so strong, you know. They sure. Like, and they had that more rock and roll attitude, you know. I, you know, you know, once again, the guy across the street had those records, and I didn't really think of Buck Owens and Johnny Cash as being country artists, you know. They were more energetic and forceful and rocking to me, you know. I didn't think of them at all like what you would hear on KLAK when you turn on the radio there in Denver, the one lone country station that was only on during the day. And, um, you know, it didn't sound like the Nashville records, you know, because they weren't, you know, they were were different. And Haggard, of course, he was my, my favorite of all, you know. Sure. His, his, his more jazzy singing style, you know, his singing off the mic and, you know, using all those different shades and colors in his vocals. I was like, whoa, this guy's like, he's more like Frank Sinatra than he was Roy Acuff, you know. Right. We interrupt this regularly scheduled gristle-infested conversation to give a special shout-out to our friends at Fishman Transducers, makers of the Greg Koch Signature Fluence Gristle Tone pickup set. Can you dig that? And our friends at Wildwood Guitars of Louisville, Colorado, bringing the heat in the shadow of the Rocky Mountains. So cool. when you're in Denver at this at the, at the particular point we're talking about, you're gigging around and playing five nights a week. And was there a point where you're just like, I got to get out of here? Or you just like, I think I want to go to Nashville because that's... No, I didn't. I didn't ever... Um, strive to go to Nashville. When I first got out of town, I ended up in Chicago with my, uh, I had this band that started out as a party band. We started playing parties. It was like, I was rehearsing next door to this guy who was, who had a drum set and he was messing around with his crazy friends. And he said, Hey man, you want to go play a party with us? You know? And I said, sure, I'll go play. He said, it pays, it pays money. I'll say, yeah. And they were playing, you know, garage rock from the sixties kind of stuff, you know? And so we, uh, play you know all these kind of fun songs you know it was dance people and party people and it was like you know and we sort of we um i used to hang out at this place called wax tracks records and uh in denver and they were importing all the like cool records like by dr feel good and all the all the great um uh, they would get all the glam rock stuff in there you know and all that stuff you know we we drove to kansas city to see mata hoople because <sighs> They wouldn't. They weren't coming to Denver, so we wanted. To, we had to go see Mount Hoople, so we went to. We drove ten hours to see him, you know. Man, but uh, dedication. <laughs> yeah, you know. But they started bringing in these bands, these uh, early punk rock bands, you know. And then they got a. They got window that I had a band, and then they hired us to play a party. And then all of a sudden, all these punk rock people started liking my band, and my drummer and I started writing songs, and um, we had a punk rock audience, but we weren't really a punk rock band, but that was who would come see us, you know? And right. I was like, you know, so, but anyway, the wax tracks guys moved to Chicago and they said, Hey, you guys got to come play a, a party for us up here in Chicago. So I said, okay. So we ended up in Chicago and then we started getting booked out of there a lot. And, uh, and, you know, we played places like Detroit and Cleveland and, 
you know, and playing for, with all these great early wave, you know, 70s punk rock bands who are all different from each other. You know, one night maybe we'd be opening for Perubu, who were fabulous, you know, jazz, funk guys, you know, you know, really artsy and really cool. And then the next night we'd be opening for the Cramps, who were also great, you know. And, and we were like, wow, <laughs> this is fun, you know. And we ended up living in Chicago for a while. And then we ended up, uh, uh, the band sort of splintered. And we, uh, me and the drummer hooked up with a friend of mine. And we uh, lived in New York City for a while, you know, ah. and played that, that scene and uh, doing all that. And then that, uh, that kind of fell apart. And I ended up back in Denver playing country music and, uh, and still had some sideline gigs with my pal. But uh, we you know, were playing at the local punk rock place, uh, you know, playing our more artsy kind of music. And uh, uh, then that went on till about 87. I got a phone call one day and it was a, a friend of mine in Nashville. And he said, hey, man, um, uh, we need uh, we just fired our guitar player. In this I'm playing with these two girls. They got some hits on the radio. And they're, they're called the Sweethearts of the Rodeo. I said, oh, man, I know who they are. I've been listening to their records. Yeah, I like them. And, he's, and I said, you're playing with them? He said, yeah, yeah. Um, I was playing with one of the girls' husbands, but uh, he's, you know, he's just singing demo here. And that was Ben Skill. And um, he's, you know, he's not really doing much but singing demos around Nashville. And he's trying to get a record deal, trying to get some action going, you know. But uh, And so... He, and I said, well, that sounds interesting. He said, here's the catch. I said, what's the catch? He said, we, we, we're leaving um, in three days to go out on the road. So you got to be here like in the you know, day after tomorrow to oh. rehearse with us. You know? and, and I was like, I can do that. Sure, man, I'll go down to Nashville. I never thought about going to Nashville. So I loaded my shit in my car and drove down to Nashville and rehearsed with these guys. And, and it was really amazing because I met all these people like the first week I was in town, you know, and we went out on tour opening for Alabama, you know, and, you know, I went from one life to another and I just sort of stayed here, you know, uh, I was, it was not a plan at all, you know, but fortunately I, you know, I was well-versed in that kind of music, you know, sure. I understood it and uh, knew how it worked and it was, it was fun. And they were a good, they were a good act. They were really nice. Um, they paid really well. Um, they ran a clean business and uh, they had good players. You know, I was, we had a string of great players, you know, always in the band, you know, it's like somebody couldn't get, we'd get somebody else, you know, but it's like, we didn't have any bad players ever. They were always great. You know, and I was like, wow, this is fun, you know? And then I, you know, the, the, the girl who played, uh, rhythm guitar and, and sang harmony was married to Vince Gill at the time. And I got to meet him and hang out with him. You know, I was like, whoa, this guy's a wicked guitar player, you know, right. unbelievable. You know, it's like, wow, what a tone, you know, what a sound, you know, couldn't believe how good he was, you know, just like knocked me out. So how long, how long did that gig last? How long did you do that? Five years. I played that gig for five years. And, um, then I, uh, got a call to audition for Patty Loveless's band. And she was really good, you know, like, and I liked her early records a lot, you know? And so I did that and that's where I met my wife. She was oh, okay. a young fiddle player and singer for Patty. And um, I did that gig for two years, but she started cutting all this pop music stuff at that time. 
they were like Garth Brooks sort of introduced this whole new element into country music, you know, and, and suddenly she was under all this pressure from the record company to, you know, do more than just stand at the microphone and sing, you know. Right. They, they hired a choreographer to help her put on a stage show. And I was just like, oh, man. <laughs> you know, and and suddenly all the, the, the records had all this, you know, like sappy synth, you know, sounds and, you know, you know artificial piano, you know, sure. DX, you know, it's all that stuff. And, and, the, and, and the songs became more, they were, didn't have that sort of honky tonk sound that her earlier records did, you know, and I actually played on one of her number one hits, but, um, um, and I just was like, ah, oh, I can't do this, you know? And fortunately she, you know, after I left, you know, she went on for several years and then she got back and cut that mountain soul record, that bluegrass record, which is unreally, I mean, that's so good. It's like the best thing she ever did, you know, so great, fantastic. And my wife's on that record singing. Yeah. Excellent. Yeah, she sang on a lot of Patty's records, but uh, then, then I just sort of hung around town. I worked with Rodney Crowell. Right. We went out and played a lot of gigs, sometimes as a duo, um, which was a lot of fun. And um, he always so had good players. Talk a little players. bit about the, what, what the vibe's like. So you're, you're on the road, you know, with one band, Sweethearts of the Rodeo, and then is is there time for you when you're off the road to kind of hang with everybody and meet people or you kind of is it, it was there yeah of- yeah you know I, well you know i discovered quickly you know because of my musical uh you know taste uh that, that nashville had a vibrant rock and roll scene um you know and lots of indie rock bands that lived here and great songwriters in these bands you know so i started going down and listening to those people a lot and hanging around and met a lot of those people and there were some great people really really good songwriters and uh, and some really good bands back in those days, the 80s, man, natural rock bands in the 80s were really cool. They were rootsy, but but they obviously were, you know, people that really held the songwriting in high regard, right. you know, and, and it was more, you know, informed by people like, you know, the Beatles songwriting, you know, more of that kind of thing, you know, it was more, uh, you know, adventurous and but yeah, in a sort of blue collar way too, you know, there lots of, you know, two guitar, bass and drums bands that were really powerful and great. There was a band called Will and the Bushmen that were just knocked me out. They were so good. And it turned out it was Will Kimbrough was Will and he was a great guitar player and singer and songwriter, you know, and, and there was, there was all kinds of great bands around in those days. So I was digging all that stuff and meeting all those people. And, and there was, a, I discovered there was a whole underbelly of, you know, music here because of, you know, all the producers and engineers and musicians, they all had kids and they all grew up here and they, you know, they all grew up in the industry. So they, you know, they had a lot of different tastes, you know, and that being, you know, teenagers being teenagers, they, they always look, you know, to the more modern, you know, indie kind of stuff, you know? And so there was a lot of people that were in, you know, uh, influenced by stuff not here in nashville you know that grew up here so it's still that way i was was going to ask you about just the the difference between being a road guy and then doing sessions was that a difficult thing to transition to or was it yeah 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 it was it was i did a lot of sessions in the in the 90s you know that was my sort of that's when i did the most in, in early 2000s you know and 
it was more, it was really fun for a while for me. But then um, the the music, you know, became different. You know, they started phasing out guitar solos and you know you know making it more hip hop ish and all that stuff. You know, and, and I like hip hop. I like hip hop. I really do. Sure, absolutely. I don't like I don't like Nashville hip hop. <laughs> right. Yeah. I like you know I like uh, New York hip hop. Right. Yeah, I like L.A. hip hop, but you know Nashville hip hop is not very cool. You know? it's like, <laughs> pretty square. It's like as Steve Earle put it best. He says it's 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 hip hop for white people who are afraid of black people, and <laughs> and you know he's right. You know yep. that's really what it is. You know it's conservative hip hop, and uh, that doesn't have uh, there's nothing there for me. And you know, and I, my hats are off to my friends who still do those sessions because they're you know they're great musicians. You know? Sure. You know, that's, and it's, it's a good, honest living and, and, you know, but, you know, Nashville was always from the whole, the whole time I've been here, it's about, there's about 50 people that play on all those records sure. at the most. It's right. more, probably more like 30, you know, and, you know, that's, that's the way it is, you know, right. it's, that's just the way it is. And it's, it's really you know, it takes a lot to stay in that world, you know, and be one of those guys. And they're all really good. I mean, they're sure. great musicians and they all, you know, you know, they're, you know, I, I'm, I'm not knocking them, you know. Sure, I understand. I, I'm not really one of them, though, you know. I'm not really cut out for that kind of thing, you know. I'd be interested to know what the learning curve was like gear wise from when you're on the road to just kind of going, well, if I got to keep up with the Joneses here, or do you just said, no, I do what I do. I mean, what kind of, well, what kind being of changes an outsider, you know, I, I, I hit the town with a, a couple of tweed fenders and a, and a, and a vintage Vox AC, AC 30, you know, those are my, that. <laughs> and, and the first couple of sessions I did, they're like, what are we going to do with that? Everybody's playing through rack stuff here, you know? Uh -huh. And so fortunately I was able to go out and buy some rack stuff. And, um, and I did that for a very short amount of time. And then, um, luckily, um, amps sort of started slowly creeping back in and I never got rid of my good amps, you know? And, um, and I got out of the rack stuff, um, really early too. I, uh, there was a place called Broadway Music down down on um, and uh, on West uh, West End there in Nashville, and you could take your stuff in there and put it on consignment. <laughs> and I cleaned up, man. I got really good prices for all that stuff. I and for the uninitiated, tell us a little bit about what what would be in one of these racks back in the day. Well, you know, you'd have a preamp, you know, typically like a Mesa Boogie preamp. Right. And you would go into some Rocktron effects units, maybe, you know, I had, and, um, you know, a cabinet simulator, right. you know, just, you know, basic stuff. But I think rock, uh, rack stuff is a lot better now than it was then. It was, it was okay, but it, it was very artificial sounding, you know, sure. uh, you know, and I liked it, you know, I, I was, you know, I was like, it was, it was sort of amusing, you know, but <laughs> But I didn't really like the way it sounded. I didn't like the records they were putting out. You know, I you know once Garth Brooks hit, I I never really listened to country music again after that. You know, I never did. I mean, I just all the music that's come since like Dwight Yoakam was about the last guy I listened to, right. and after that there wasn't anybody for me. You know, that was it. I was done. I there was you know I couldn't listen to that stuff. You know, there was nothing there that spoke to me, and 
I just sort of, you know, I've managed to work with people that, uh, well, Marty Stewart, I've been working yeah. with him for 20 years. We was, right. you know, he, he kind of dug his heels in and said, you know, well, I, I, my radio days are over and I want to, you know, he called me up and said, I just want to have a four piece band and go out and play old stuff and have fun, you know? And I said, oh, I'll do that, man. Yeah. Awesome. You know, it was guitar, you know, we're, right. I'm playing, you know, we're playing dueling guitar solos and harmonies and, you know, we're twanging and, and banging and, and, you know, slamming and, and then I'll pick up the acoustic and he's like the virtuoso on the bluegrass mandolin, you know, it's like, this is really, a, it was really challenging for me because the guy is really a, a, a competitive player. So you, you gotta be at the top of your game to step on stage with the guy. Cause he's going to burn you if you don't, you know, he's just that way, you know, in a good way, a healthy fun way you know sure. if somebody makes a mistake he laughs right you know uh if he makes a mistake he laughs that's not about that but you better be up there to you better step up to the edge of the stage and entertain those people right you know and the more you the more outrageous you want to play that's good when it's your time to play you better you, you better entertain them you know and and that's that was really good for me it's like that's the first gig i really had like that you know where i was like allowed to sort of you know step up to the plate and deliver you know right and he let me sing my songs you know you know he featured me in a song or two every set you know every show and it was like hey that's cool you know awesome you know, well it's yeah. it's, a, it's great stuff it's just yeah absolutely. you know the, the first the, the, the first rehearsal he said well, you got one you want to sing and i said i, I don't know uh, and so I just pulled some simple song that I'd written out and he's like, perfect. Yeah. Okay. You know? And I was like, all right, cool. I can, you know, not only do I sing, but I'm singing a song I wrote. That's good. You know? And so had you known him just casually before that or how did it all? I, I'd met him a couple of times and um, he doesn't remember the first time I met him, but uh, the second time I met him, uh, he got my number and then he called me a while later, you know, and, but I didn't really know him well, but I, I was a fan of his. Sure. I knew all about him, and some of my friends had played in his band. And, you know, I knew all about his Clarence White guitar. And right. I was, I was a huge Clarence White fan. Oh, my I God, was, yes, absolutely. <laughs> yeah, so, um, yeah, I was big, big time into him. So it worked out. Yeah, I would say. I would say that worked out pretty good. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's been a really good gig. You know, it's, I, it's never been a drag to play that gig. It's always fun. That guy's really a, you know, when he hits the stage, man, he's always there to have a good time. He's never there to, to have any, but he loves playing. He, he's he's a lifer, you know. Sure. He, 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 he just, you know, and he runs a great operation. You know, his bus is wonderful. It, you know, it's it's freakishly clean at all times <laughs> Excellent. you know you know we talk about music all the time you know uh, it's just it's, it's a really healthy environment you know well in a, in a non-covid year what what would be the amount of uh of time that you spent on the road with marty and probably the you know, last couple of years we were doing maybe between 120 and 140 shows a year oh, it's a lot you know but it's but it's well done and you know, it's fun. We have a great time. Always, you know, he's, he's the kind of guy that hires agreeable people. Right. So everybody on the bus is fun. They're all cool, easy to get along with. You know, there's no, you know, there's no 
bad vibes ever. You know, it's always, you know, easy going and, and everybody's there for the right reasons, you know. And that rhythm so, section is the rhythm section you use when you do your trio gigs, correct? No, not really. Oh, okay. I thought I I, I work with Scruggs a lot, the guy that plays bass. He's right. he's the he's the best guitar player in the band. No he, way. He, yeah, he's better than me and Marty put together. He's a he's a he's an amazing guitar player, and he's the best uh, non-pedal player, steel player in Nashville. He's Crazy. just insane. It's crazy. And he's an awesome upright player, awesome um, electric player. And I've hired him to play drums on sessions. <laughs> so he's just one of those, one of those yeah. people. Yeah. Yeah. He's, he's a, he's a, he's the boy wonder. I, I met him when he was four. What? And, uh, yeah. Uh, I was over at his mom. His mom was a, a famous country singer named Dave, Gail Davies. She had a lot of hits in the seventies and early eighties. And uh, she was the first woman producer in Nashville. She was a big pioneer. They didn't like that. And uh, she was the first woman that came in and ran the sessions, you know, and they were like, you know, some of the, some of the old boys didn't take too kindly to it, but she's really good. You know, great, great musical person, you know? And uh, so anyway, he grew up in the biz, you know, but I met him over at her house at a, a barbecue one afternoon when he was four. Crazy. <laughs> And I started working with him downtown back when you could work downtown, when it was uh, still honky tonks, where you, you could play what you wanted to, old music, sure. old country music. And he was 16 when I first worked with him down there. He, he was, he, there was this one club downtown called Layla's. Right. And Layla is a wonderful chick, wonderful uh, lady. And she signed on as his uh, sponsor at his high school. He got credit for going down to play. <laughs> At her club uh. <laughs> in high school. <laughs> yeah. He was like, you know, he was always one of those rockabilly kids, you know. He, he's going to Hillsboro High over in Green Hills, which is sort of the, you know, the the nicest high school in Nashville. Right. And he's he's got jeans rolled up and, and a pompadour and a white t-shirt, you know. And, uh, you know, and everybody's looking at him like he's from outer space, you know, and <laughs> going down to play on Broadway on like, you know, Tuesday night at, at 10, play, you know, three hour shift down there or whatever, you know, and, you know, he was down there going crazy playing music. And he's really great. Well, talk a little bit about uh, the gear that you're using, if we can kind of gear geek out a little bit. You, you gravitated towards Princeton's at some point. Well, I, yeah, yeah, I like black, those. that black telly too, right? So, what, what's the story with these items? Well, um, I'm a, I, my main amp for about the last forty years has been my '67 Prince, or my '67 Deluxe Reverb. That's okay. my number one main amp. But in the studio, I always prefer a Princeton. Okay, you know, for for I just settled on a Princeton Reverb for ease of getting around town. I like the way it records a little bit better. Mm-hmm. You know, it's, it it saturates a little bit more in a more friendly way, right? Than the than the deluxe, um, but the deluxe sounds better on stage for for this for the Marty Stewart gig. You know, it has a little bit more wattage and it just sure. works a lot better. But um, I, I on certain stages, I I always have Princeton with me, and I I take that if it's on certain stages. If it's if volume's a problem, I'll just use that. But I used the, I, you know, I, I, you know, I've tried so many different amps over the years in the studio. But I always, 
if, if I didn't know what I was going to expect it of me, I always could get it done with a Princeton reverb because you got the reverb, you can make it sound, you know, you can boost the, the front end of it and get a good saturation. You know, you can use pedals with it. It's pedal friendly sure. or it's and it'll clean right up and sound great clean, you know, but I always, you know, I, I was always picky about speakers in all my amps. I, I never used the stock speakers in those things. So I gravitated years ago when I discovered Alnico speakers. I was like, I like that a little bit better, especially for clean sounds. You know, when I was using Vox amps, I was like, why do they sound better? That's the speaker, man. The speakers uh-huh. I was like the Alnico speakers more. So I've always put those in there. Yeah. The brand isn't as important as the, to me, I'm just not really a ceramic guy all the time. I like it for, for crunch, but for, um, for clean sounds, I, I tend to get more what I need out of an Alnico speaker. And so these days, do you do you haul around a couple pedals, or do you just for ease of simplicity you just plug right in and go? Or oh, I do all I do everything. A lot of Correct. times, yeah. um, you know, a lot of times you find that plugging straight in is the way to do it. Right. And then a lot of times, pedals are well, the way to go. It just you know every situation is different. You know, true. I yeah. love I love pedals, man. I've got they're fun. They are a blast, man. I've, I've, I've never been an anti-pedal guy. I've always I've say, bring them on, man. And um, I love them. I, I really have fun with them. But uh, a lot of times, you know, the best thing for a certain situation is to plug direct to your amp. You know, I have a Marshall PA20, 71 PA20 uh, head that I've used a lot. That thing has seen a lot of action. And I have a pre-war... I think it's a 38 uh, Gibson uh, EH150, the Charlie Christian amp, you know? Yeah, oh, yeah, that, that thing. That's a fire breather, man. Exactly. That thing. If you plug your telly into that, you can you you, you can sound like Led Zeppelin, man. Yeah, I've I mean, recorded a bit. A brother of mine's got one of those amps. I, mean, I think it's when you go through the vocal channel, you can overdrive. Yeah, yep, it's oh, the mic man. channel. Oh, it's glory. Yeah. I mean, it's just like. Man, I, I did a uh, track. I have a band that I play with. Uh, I've had for about 20 years with uh, my friend Dave Rowe. He plays bass. You probably heard of him, the upright bass player and electric bass player. He's uh, He was Johnny Cash's bass player for okay, yeah. the last 10 years that Johnny Cash was working. And uh, he played with a lot of people. But he's really a really good funk bass player and a, a, a you know, he's really good at that stuff. He's a funky guy and it's a great upright player, but you know, we have a, um, uh, it's our power trio. You know, we okay. have a, uh, it's a fusion, you know, rock, all go all direction power trio, you know, where we play more forward thinking stuff, you know, and tight arrangements. Our drummer, uh, is the drummer for the ad- average white band. Okay. Uh, Pete, Pete Abbott. And, uh, he's a great jazz player. Really good. I mean, you know, he's, he, but he can play power funk and rock and roll. And, you know, he's a, he's a, you know, and we can throw time signatures at him and whatever. And he's, he's got it, you know, yeah, yeah. he can do it in his sleep. You know, all the, you know, our Frank Zappa influence stuff, you know, the, we can do all that stuff and it's not a problem, you know? So I, I but I cut some tracks with the EH 150 in that band and it was like, yeah, yeah, there you go. You know? Yeah. It's a gnarly, it's a gnarly little device without question. It sounds really good, man. I, I love that amp. The pre-war technology, it's a different thing, man. Exactly. You know? 
So Nashville these days, tell us a little bit about how you, I mean, obviously it's home now and you've, you've, you've seen all the different changes of this, that, the next thing, but um, what's it like for you these days? Well, I mean, Nashville has always been, the best thing for me about Nashville has always been the great players. Right. You know, they're here just, you know, every time you walk out the door, you're going to encounter some, the, the guy that maybe that's serving you your espresso might be the best guitar player in the world. You know, right. there's always somebody new and the whole, um, the bluegrass, um, the post Chris Thiele bluegrass scene, mm-hmm. you know, the punch brothers, right. There's a whole crop of those kids who are like 18 that can just play shit that you wouldn't, you, you blow your mind, you know? Right. And like, I mean, modern jazz is not a problem for these people. You know, they, they can play the most complex stuff, read it, play it, burn it. It's like, there's a whole crop of those people, which I really like that, the, the, you know, the forward thinking uh, attitude that those people have. And um, I'm not talking about the traditional people. They play, they can play traditional grass, but they, but they're more, they're listening to everything, you know, they're listening to 20th century, century classical music you know Debussy and stuff like that right and um that's you know they're really going in the right direction and um there's a guy named uh, Jim Oblon here are you hip to Jim Oblon no oh Greg well you are now yes O-B-L-O-N Jim Oblon he's he hit town about six seven years ago and he blew my mind Jim Oblon. Yeah, O B L O N. He has three records out. Listen to all of them. All right. Up. His first album uh, he did with uh, live in the studio in L.A. with uh, Larry Goldings on Hammond playing okay. bass yep. uh, with his left hand and Jim Keltner on drums and oh. Jim singing and playing guitar. Hello. He's a tele- plays a Telecaster. Okay. And uh, mostly just the bridge pickup. And he is just another he's from another planet man the guy Excellent. is so good great singer great great writer great player and as a style that will just mess you up I, I when i first used to go watch him play he was playing this little uh, hipster bar where nobody was really paying attention to him but i used to see you know he'd be up there grooving along playing something and he'd start taking a solo and he would play something and i'd see kids that were at the bar turn around like girls turn around and go <laughs> what just happened? What was that? What just happened there? What what was and look at him just like I mean, I would bring people in to watch him and they'd be like, What? Good. What I can't wait. Like, he's groovy, he's cool, and everything he does is smart, you know. He's just like uh, you know, but people like that come here, you know. And his day job, he was the drummer for Paul Simon. Touch. That was that was his day job. He took, uh, you know, he took, uh, you know, Steve Gadd's place or, you know, I mean, you know, I mean, you know, and, and he, he's, he's, yeah, yeah, right. You know, and, and he has this one album he put out where he plays bass and drums and guitar on it. He's the only guy in the album. He's the baddest drummer and the baddest bass player. He plays, I hired him one night to play bass for me. <laughs> and, and he says, I don't have a bass, man. I said, I'll bring a bass and amp. You just show up. And we'll play the gig and you play bass. I said, you know my stuff. You've heard me, you know. He said, okay, man. He played the coolest bass parts I've ever heard that <laughs> night. It was like 
why doesn't everybody else play those notes? That's the way you play the bass. He was playing, we were playing like these simple blues things and he's playing these like cool figures, you know, like boom, do, 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 boom. He's like stuff that other guys don't do. Like right. establish the rhythm, then go up high and play it. And he has two things going at once, you know, but it's like, and he's just like looking around the room while he's doing it. Like, you know, like, yeah, it's like, oh man, you know, he's a, he's a, some kind of crazy guy, man. He's, he's, a, he's an unusual character. Really, really, really. Right up my alley. <laughs> oh yeah, man. You're going to, when you hear this guy play, you're going to be like, wait a minute. Awesome. <laughs> and, he, and, he, and he doesn't spring it on you at first. He'll, he'll draw you in and then he goes in for the kill. And then he goes you for know? the jugular. <laughs> oh, and what, and sometimes when he does, it, it won't stop, you know? It's like, oh, just cascades of stuff coming off the fretboard, like, whoa. And, it's the, and, the, and his note selection is so cool. I mean, the melodic, he's kind of like, um, you know, like Frank Zappa in that way, in that you hear it, and it's like, that's different from anybody else's notes. Right. Those melodies aren't like all the other guys. That's, right. that's more, it's, you know, there's more going on than just, the normal riffs you know this is not the same shit that i've been hearing and he's he has his own oblon style it's like oh that's him you know you could hear it a mile away his tone excellent his, his notes it's like you know it's kind of like jeff beck you know there's notes on his guitar that aren't on my guitar right <laughs> you know it's yep. like wait you can always tell you know like every time you see jeff play like he'll get you right you know and, and he's yeah. like Wait a minute! What did you just do? I, that, that, my guitar won't do that. You know that. Right. What are those notes? You know, <laughs> it's, it's the way he puts them together. You know. Awesome! I can't and then wait. there's a. I don't know if you're hip to Jack Pearson. Oh yeah, I know Jack absolutely. Yeah. Well, you know, he's another. Yep. He's completely soul. I mean, come on. Right. You know, when he have you ever heard him play jazz? Oh yeah. Yeah, I've 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 bathed I've bathed in the Jack Pearson experience. Yes, come on, man. You know it's like guys like that, and then there's a. Have you heard um, uh, Pat Bergeson? Oh yeah, I know Pat. Yep. Yeah, yeah. There's there's another cat that. But this Jim Oblon, I have not experienced yet. So oh, dude. Oh yeah, you're in for it now, man. You're gonna you'll like it. And there, you know, the the first album was just sort of live and the second album i think it's just two resonator guitars that's all that's the whole all that is on there awesome. and then uh, and then the third one is he plays everything by himself i haven't talked to him lately so i'm sure he's probably has something new in the works but uh check go to you know check him out on instagram yeah um, you'll see some live stuff of him just maybe just in his uh, kitchen playing you know or you know singing and playing he's he's really interesting he's excellent but it's you got to check out his electric stuff. Okay, that's what, got you, it. You're you're really gonna that'll that'll really mess you up. Excellent. Yeah. Looking yeah. forward to it. Yeah, yeah, really good. Excellent. Yeah, he's he's an artist, you know, in every sense of the word. I mean, he's he thinks about it, you know, all all his stuff. He's there's a lot behind all of his songs. Awesome. Yeah. Well, listen. On that note. Thank you so much for spending this time with us, and it's been a pleasure getting to know you a little bit and shoot the breeze. Hopefully next time I'm in Nashville, we can hang out. Man, anytime you're coming this way, let me know beforehand, man. I will definitely Seriously. do that. I will Seriously. definitely do that. And uh, 
I'd like, I wanted to come see one of your shows sometimes, man. I, 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 I was not really aware of what you do until you, you know, and I looked you up and look, watched some of your stuff, man. You're just, it's, I love what you're doing, man. Oh, well, thank you very much. I really appreciate cool. it. Yeah. And look for my band, uh, the slow beats. All right. I'll do that. I'll check that out. Yeah. Yeah. I've got that band. And then there's, uh, there's another one called the Imperial blues hour. And uh, that's with the, that's with uh, this drummer named Jeffrey Clemens that uh, sings and plays drums. And he's in a band called uh, G-Love and Special Sauce. Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. But um, he's a good blues singer, and he has this band called the Imperial Blues Hour. It's just, it's just uh, Dave Rowe on bass, upright bass mostly, and uh, myself and Jeffrey. But it, that's really a – it's like a, a strange, awkward, weird little blues band. And, and it's kind of a – it's, it's one of those gigs where it always dissolves into a comedy show, you know. Ah, perfect. Yeah, you, know, you know, a lot, a lot of a uh, lot of laughs in that band, but it's it's a it's a pretty uh, pretty cool little band. It's play, we play really quiet, but we get pretty out there. Awesome. Yeah, we don't. I'm going to uh, check that out. Post. It's, it's not. It's it's not a sports bar b- b- bowling shirt band. I understand. <laughs> <laughs> it's not that kind of blues. <laughs> I understand. Yeah, you know what I'm talking. It's it's, it's more um, it's 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 pretty uh, uh, it's a strange little blues band, but it's fun. But that that's not my other fun little thing I do around town. But but the slow beats thing, we we uh, this COVID thing, we um, recorded like 15 of our songs that we've written and uh, you know mastered them and did all that stuff. And there's some label that wants to maybe do an EP on us, you know, or a couple sure. EPs. It's it's just for for our own amusement, but it's pretty. We we try pretty hard to, you know, make it, uh, you know, listenable for everybody. Sure. And there's some, there's a couple of cool instrumentals that I do, you know, with those guys and lots of vocal tunes, and it's 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 a good it's a good project. Awesome! I'm looking forward to listening yeah. to it. Yeah, that that guy, the bass player Dave Rowe, is a character. He's a he's a mess. He's I've been I've been <laughs> working with him for. We've been we've had a band for like twenty years that we've you know you know and it's just for our own amusement and we there are no rules you know sure. we're not style shows. we're we're not uh, bound to one style but it is a power trio we we you know we we go for the jugular yes <laughs> <laughs> awesome I'm looking forward to checking that out my friend great hanging with you I'm going to prepare for. Got another live stream. I've been doing about four, right. four live streams a week, and then we do another one with the band every other week. I got a trio with my my son on drums, and then uh, the B3 player comes down from Minneapolis. And although we don't drag the B3 in this little room, obviously, but uh, get the Leslie back there. He plugs cool, in. Cool, man. And away we I go. Could, I got to check that out. Yeah, it's, that's, that's the, the Cock Marshall Trio, the KMT. That's the... Cool. The main gigging band. So next time we come through, we'll so come through with that band. We'll have you come out and sit in. It'd be awesome. Okay. Do you have KMT stuff online that I can listen oh, to? Oh, we do indeed. Yeah. If you just if you just Googled uh, uh, or on um, on YouTube, there's some you know either it's under Talk my Mar- name or Hawk Marshall Trio. Yeah. KMT. Okay. I'm gonna look that up right now. All right. Man, thank sounds you good. so much for having me on. I really my appreciate pleasure. it. It's an honor to be on your podcast, and it's wonderful talking to you. Well, likewise, my friend. All the same. Best of luck to you, and we'll hope to see you soon. Yeah, man. All right, have a good Check one. Check out Tim Oblong. I'm, I absolutely am. Thank you, my All friend. All right, man. Bye-bye. See ya.
Thank you so much, folks, for tuning in. Special thank you to Wildwood Guitars of Louisville, Colorado, and the Mighty Fishman Transducers for making this podcast possible. If you enjoyed yourself, ladies and gentlemen, please subscribe and review so that people can get the word out that this is worth experiencing. Can you dig it? Thanks again. We'll see you soon, or you'll hear me soon.